0: So as you all know, we're we're embarking this evening on a a new series in the book of Romans. I'm going to call this series, as it says on the order of service sheet, The Greatest Letter Ever Written. The title's not original to me. I've borrowed it from John Piper. John Piper's borrowed it from many who have gone before him. You see, from the earliest days in the Christian church, the letter to the Romans has been considered the greatest. Has it ever struck you that it's the first letter in the New Testament? It's not first because it was written earliest, because it wasn't. And it's not first because it's just Paul's most important letter, or longest letter. It's first in the New Testament canon because it is the greatest letter. It deserves the honor of first place in the New Testament. Listen to what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said of Romans that this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament. And it is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, <laughs> but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much, for the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. John Calvin said, if we have gained an understanding of this epistle, We have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. Understand Romans and you'll understand the entire Bible, is what Calvin says. This this is the greatest letter because it gives us the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. You want to know the good news of God? Here it is in Romans, in full and in all its glory. This letter gives us the theology of the gospel. In this letter we have clearly articulated the key doctrines. God's righteousness. Man's sinfulness. Justification by faith alone. Union with Christ. Election. Sanctification. You name it, it's here. It is a glorious letter with glorious theology it's not just the greatest letter because of what others have said about it because it occupies first place it's a great letter because it's been so great in its impact in history you know if you've ever read church history you'll know that this letter has had the most profound impact on so many Christians there was once a North African he was part of a cult. He was living a really wayward life. Bondage and slavery to sexual immorality in particular. Until one day he heard little boy saying, Tolly leggy, pick up and read. And he picked up the book of Romans and he was gloriously converted. His name, Augustine. Greatest, one of the greatest theologians the church has ever known. Arguably the father of Calvinism. And then there's Martin Luther. The complete opposite of Augustine's testimony. He was a pious, devoted monk. And yet he had no assurance. He had no clarity in the gospel. Not until he read these verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther, the greatest reformer of the Protestant Reformation. And then just 300 years ago, somewhere near here, in Aldersgate Street, perhaps even on this spot, there was once a chapel And John Wesley heard someone reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary in Romans and his heart was strangely warmed. Just think about that. the One of the greatest evangelists the church has ever known. So he had the greatest theologian, the greatest reformer, one of the greatest evangelists the church has ever known, all greatly impacted by this letter. And so church, As we begin this new series, I would suggest that we should come to this this letter with great expectations of what God might do in our life. He's done it before. He can do it again. In fact, my prayer for us is that we would be greatly impacted by the truths of this letter. This morning when I was uh, coming to church, I was Riding on the tube. And and most of the times when I'm I'm in the tube station, I'm never looking at anything. I'm fixed on where I'm going. But today as I was standing, I I couldn't help but notice all these warning messages just on the the platform. Danger. Live cables. And as I was looking at them, it, it hit me that Romans should have a spiritual safety warning right at the front. I don't know what the image should be. Maybe a a grenade with a pin pulled or a stick of dynamite. Because the thing about this letter is it's explosive. And the truth of the gospel as it's received into the life of a believer. This is explosive. Handle this letter with great care. You've been warned this letter is going to impact us. It's going to challenge what you believe and what you think about God. It's going to challenge you in what you think is right and what you think is wrong. It's going to challenge you with regards to this world. It's going to challenge you with with regards to your understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. It's going to challenge you with regards to the nature of the Christian life. So many different ways we're going to be challenged. Come to this book then with great expectations, but come. Come in a posture of humility and reverence. I have to be honest, I come to this book with a bit of, with great fear and trepidation. You know, John Piper, when he describes the book of Romans, he says it's the Mount Everest. The New Testament. I think he's right to, to call it the Mount Everest of the New Testament. Because it, because what it does is, is as we, as we endeavor to scale it, we get these breathtaking views of who God is and what God has done. But, but the other reality is it's, it's such a great challenge. To try and scale Mount Everest, and it's such a great challenge for me as a preacher to try and unpack here some of the most glorious truths ever written. So, so can I can I ask you? Will you pray for me? <laughs> Seriously, I, I come to this book with great trepidation. And only with the help of God will we be able to get through this series. Now, this is a great letter. We should come to it with great expectations. We greatly depend upon God as we come to it. Let me just tell you uh, something of the way we're going to approach this book. Because Romans is such a dense book, theologically speaking, it's, it's a book that's led many preachers in the past to get quite microscopic in their focus. So the greatest preacher, I would argue, of the 20th century was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached city. And he preached a sermon series in Romans. Interestingly, it wasn't on a Sunday. He preached on a Friday night. Church was packed. Do you know how many sermons he preached in the book of Romans? Over 350. I think it was 366. Over 13 years. Some of his sermons were on a paragraph. Some of his sermons were on a verse. Some of his sermons were on a word. Such is the the glorious truth in the book of Romans. Now, you'll be thankful I'm not going (laughs) to preach this book over 336 sermons because I don't have the mind nor the mastery nor the depth of of the great doctor. But my plan for us as we approach this book is we're going to walk through it not quickly but at a good pace maybe two or three sermons in each chapter i want us to get a hold of this book no rather i want this book to get a hold of us but as we as we move through it we're not going to be able to linger long in one word or just in one single verse there might be an occasion for that but but not as much as a great doctor Now, tonight, my my, my purpose for us is is really just to introduce us to this great letter. First seven verses. I'm not going to expound on the first seven verses this evening. We'll do that next Sunday evening. I just want to introduce you to this book. Look at verse 1 just for a minute. Here we're introduced to the man and his message, the man, Paul. I'm going to assume that most of us know who Paul was. We know his story. We know the Damascus Road conversion. We know that he was once a Jew. He was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. He was a blasphemer. He was violent. And yet God stopped him in his tracks and brought him to himself. And the great terrorist of the church became the greatest evangelist, the greatest church planter, the greatest Pastor. Indeed, the greatest theologian of his, of his day. The man, Paul, describes himself here as a servant of Christ Jesus and an apostle. But notice what's so important about him. His message. Verse one, he's set apart for the gospel of God. I highlight verse one because it tells us what this entire book is all about. This book is about the gospel the gospel of God. This book enables us to see the good news in high definition. This book shows us the revelation of God's righteousness and his plan for salvation. If there was a thesis statement to this letter, it would be what we read in verses 16 and 17. Paul shows us in this book that all of us are unrighteous no one is righteous no not even one but what he shows us is that there is a righteousness that has been revealed in the gospel so that we the unrighteous can be made righteous and we're made righteous we're justified by faith alone in christ alone because of his grace alone and then in the the later chapters he unpacks how we can live out that righteous life in our union with christ and step with the spirit And then he'll apply it to the context, particularly of the Roman church, but for all churches in every generation. Leon Morris is very careful to to say that one thing that should not be overlooked and should be stressed about this letter of the Romans is that it's a book fundamentally about God. It's obvious to to everyone that the book is about the gospel. But many seem not to have noticed that Paul's preoccupation, Paul's preoccupation, writes Leon, is with God. You know, the word God occurs 153 times in this book. That's an average of once every 46 words. That's more than any other New Testament letter. God, God, God. Paul writes on a number of topics, but every single one of them stand in relation to God. So we've looked at the man and the message. Did Paul write this letter to look down at verse 7 to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints? This letter was written to the church or churches in Rome. We know the Christians for sure in Rome. When you get to chapter 16, there's, the, there's a little indication that there were many house churches that made up the, the church in Rome. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, Paul's never been to Rome. He's never been and visited these churches. In fact, in chapter 1 and in chapter 15, he, he writes about he, how he's so eager and desperate to, to go there. And, and when it comes to Paul paul 's reason for wanting to visit the churches in Rome there 's no one single reason. You see, one of the things we can 't say about the book of Romans is that it 's got one purpose it 's got multiple purposes it 's got a personal purpose. Paul wanted to introduce himself to these Christians, and he wanted them to have confidence in him because he was a faithful preacher of the gospel. but the other personal reason and it's connected to a missional reason is that he wanted the church in rome to be his supporting church his sending church he wanted them to support him in his mission work as he was about to make his way to spain there's not just that purpose there's a theological purpose paul was deeply concerned that the that the church in rome would understand the theology of the gospel in all of its glory And so he labors long. Chapters 1 through 11, doctrine, theology. Chapters 12 through 16, application. And then there's another purpose. Paul's a pastor. And if you read all the comments about the letter of Romans, this one often gets lost. Paul wrote this letter for a pastoral reason. You see, the thing that we know about the church in Rome was that it was a church made up of Jews who'd become Christians and Gentiles who'd become Christians. And as I'll explain in a few moments, there was clearly a lot of tension and friction. And so Paul, as a pastor, as as we read about in, in chapters 13 and 14 and 15, was deeply concerned that they would have harmony, that they would be at one, that in their fellowship and in their unity they would showcase the glory of the gospel to the watching world. So there's, there's the man, the message, there's some of the main reasons for why Paul wrote this letter. I, I know sermons like these in the introduction can be quite hard, so what I'm going to endeavor to do now is we walk through some of the points I just want to draw attention to. I'm going to try and apply them. Do you know when Paul wrote this, he wrote it in AD 57, do you know what that means? He wrote it at the end of his third missionary journey. He had 25 years of experience as a pastor, preacher, evangelist, and theologian. So what we have in the book of Romans is Paul's mature reflection. He's, he's been in the business of applying the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to so many people in so many different contexts. He's just about completed his third missionary journey. He's been to modern-day Turkey. What is modern-day Turkey? He's been to modern-day Greece. He's been throughout Macedonia. And he's there established churches. We believe that Paul wrote this letter from, from the poor in Corinth. Acts chapter 20 tells us about this three-month season he had whilst he was there. I'll not get into the details why we we believe it was there that he wrote it, but suffice to say that some of the original manuscripts actually have written on it, written in Corinth. In chapter 16, he mentions someone he's sending, and he says that they're coming from Corinth. So, so, So Paul wrote this, AD 57, 25 years ministry experience, mature pastor, Now, now, what I want us to do is, is to take our Bibles and turn to chapter 15. And as I've been highlighting, there's various purposes for why Paul wrote this letter. Let me just, let me just show you that, right? Look at verse 23. And then halfway through it, it will say, And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings... He ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, when therefore, I have completed this and I have delivered them with that, um, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Let me just say in, in a sentence what Paul says here. He says, here's my travel itinerary. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to have a layover in Rome, and my final destination is Spain. Jerusalem, Rome, Spain. Why Jerusalem? Well, as Paul explains, he's going to give them money. He's been collecting money from the Gentile Christians They've been giving to a benevolent fund because there's been a famine, a crisis in Jerusalem. And, and Paul, member of the wise pastor, he's always deeply concerned about church unity. He takes money for Gentiles and he reminds them that one of the reasons they should be, they should know that they've got reason to give to the Jews is because from the Jews they received their Messiah, Jesus, as it were. Because they've received the gospel, their motivation should be to give and to give to. Jews. So that Paul's purpose in going to Jerusalem was to bring aid to the saints. Let let me apply this. One of the apostolic priorities was to give to people in need. And to give to people of different backgrounds. Paul, this absolutely dedicated pastor, was always concerned to show the unity of the gospel expressed in the giving of money. So church, We need to be committed to Christians of different backgrounds, completely culturally, ethnically speaking, in different parts of the world, so that they might enjoy something of the unity that there is in the gospel. Now, as a church, we are committed to that, but we can always uh, deepen and increase our commitment to the cause of the gospel. Second thing is, why did Paul want to stop off in Rome? Well, he says there, verse 24, I hope to be helped on my way there by you. Literally, people say that Paul's letter to the Romans is his greatest theological work. No, 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 no. Paul's letter to the Romans is a missionary support letter. He wrote this because he wanted them to support him in his mission. He wants them to become a base of operation. So in Paul's three missionary journeys, Antioch was the base. That was his sending and supporting church. They prayed for him. They gave money to him. They encouraged him. Now Paul says, church in Rome, I want you to do that for me as I'm on my way to Spain. And and, and back in chapter 1 and verse 5, we've seen that Paul, at his very heart, he's a missionary. Why has he been given grace and apostleship? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Read through verse chapter 1 right and it will strike you how eager Paul is for the gospel. He's eager to preach the gospel. He's set apart for the gospel. He's unashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Read through this, this letter. Get to chapter 10 and it will open and say, Brothers, my heart's desire in prayer to God is that the Jews would be saved. What's striking about that is Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. But his heart was burdened for his own people. In chapter 10 he says, how shall they hear if there's not someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's like he wants to create missionaries from the church in Rome to go among the Jews. And then you get a chapter 15. Verse 20 and 21, Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. You cannot read this letter and not get this insight into Paul's heart and mind. He's a missionary. He's passionate about the gospel being proclaimed to the world. And and, and, brothers and sisters, as as I've been reading and thinking about this, this amazing letter, the one thing it does is it sets you ablaze like when you see God in his glory, the gospel in its fullness, you catch a tiny glimpse of that. You can't be indifferent to it. And one of the things we need to recover, is, 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 it should be our prayer for revival, is that God would fill us with his spirit, that we might be people who are on fire for the gospel of God. You know, it's quite striking, right? Paul's so enthusiastic, so eager to preach the gospel to them. Why? Just, just think about that. Why? Because a sending and supporting church is going to help him in his work in mission in Spain, they also need to be on fire for the gospel. And so, application for us—you know—as we support the shepherds in West Africa and Adam, and among his own people group, as we support Emmanuel and others in Spain, and so on and so forth—it would be a tragedy. If we were not eager about the gospel of God here in our own city. If we just look at them as the one who are the missionaries and we here sit in comfort. I get a sense that Paul, as he wrote this letter, he 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 wrote it because he wanted his enthusiasm and his eagerness be contagious to be infectious to light them up for the gospel it's really interesting isn't it paul this great theologian paul this great pastor paul this great missionary do you know what he recognized he needed support and accountability from god's people there's no lone ranger christianity and so that's why he wants these Christians in Rome to support him. And then, of course, he says he's, he, he's going to Spain. Why is he going to Spain? Because the gospel hasn't... Christ has never been named there. He doesn't want to build on someone else's foundation. Well, here's an unreached people group. He wants to go to them with the help of the church in Rome. Now... Now, we can only understand Paul's missionary passion if we also understand his theological passion. He's obsessed with God. It's his magnificent obsession. Who God is. he's, He's obsessed with what God has done in the gospel of his son for the salvations of all peoples. And that's why he he takes so much time to unpack all the facets of the doctrine of the gospel that he does. And so we can't understand his, his missional motivation unless we understand his theological grounding. Some people say, I'm not one of those doctrine Christians, you know, those theology geeks. I'm just a practical Christian. Listen. Doctrine and practice go hand in hand. It's our theology that will drive our living, and that's what Paul clearly shows as he as he writes this letter. These two things are married together. Now, the final thing that I just want to highlight is is, is pastoral reason that I've, I've touched on. The Jews, the, the church was made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, one of the things we need to understand, just, just to, to appreciate this letter, is about seven years before Paul we approximately wrote this letter, the emperor Claudius heard that there was a controversy among the Jews. And it came to his attention that it was over somebody called Christus. Christus, it was misspelled and mispronounced. And um, his solution was, well, if they're causing controversy, they're upsetting the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, get out of Rome. So he expelled all Jews from Rome. Now, that's significant. Because we don't really know how the church in Rome came into existence, but what people assume is that it came into existence following the preaching of Peter at Pentecost. There were people from Rome there, Jews from Rome there. And so if Jews started the church in Rome and then the church grows with both Jews and Gentiles, what happens when all the Jewish Christian elders and all the Jewish Christian deacons and all the Jewish Christian Sunday school teachers have to get out of the city? Well, the church becomes de facto Gentile. But then what happens is, a few years later, all the Jews are allowed to come back to Rome. So, in Acts chapter 18, Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla, and he meets them in Corinth because they've been ejected, they've been expelled from Rome. When he writes Romans, in chapter 16, he says, greet for me Priscilla and Aquila, because they're back in Rome. Now, just imagine this happened in London City Presbyterian Church. Just imagine everyone here who's not from the UK, you were all expelled, And then you were allowed to return. And just imagine that in those years where you'd been away, maybe you were exercising uh, your gifts in Sunday school, or maybe you were in leadership. Imagine you had to come back and now you have to listen to these Gentile, these young Gentile Christians who are now in, in charge of everything. In our case, British. It'd be quite hard. And Paul the pastor, when he pens this letter, he pens it into that context. It's interesting that he devote so much time to, to the weak and the strong Christian, to, to the holy days, to the, to the tensions that often are created where there is disharmony, where there is division. Where there is arguments. Now, I don't ever want us, as we study, through, as we work our way through this letter, to miss the significance of the Jew-Gentile division, because from the get-go, Paul is always trying to emphasise the gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. There is no one righteous; no, not even one. Both Jew and Gentile fall short. They need to be saved by the same means, faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. They will grow the exact same way in their union with Christ because of their adoption as sons and daughters, because the Gentiles have been engrafted in. They're the true Israel. Paul's recurring emphasis is Jew and Gentile are one. Brothers and sisters, This is where this rings true a little for us. We are a diverse congregation who find ourselves living in a global city, who want to seek, uh, who want to support and serve missionaries in other nations. We want to be a church that's not indifferent to the gospel, but is deeply passionate about the gospel, committed to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything that's going to speak right into our situation, it's this letter. And one of the most amazing things about this letter is what it wants to do is lift high the name of Jesus and bring you very low. It wants to magnify grace. It wants to emphasize faith. Paul's great aim in Romans is that God should be glorified, but the glory and the grace of God should be visible to the watching world and the unity of his people. Paul's great purpose is that the glory of God would be seen in a united missionary church that love one another, are humbled together under grace. And so, just just to kick this series off, that's where we're going to start. We ought to be humbled because of the glory of God's grace shown to us in the gospel. We ought to remember that our great purpose is to be united as a missionary church who seek to see those who are lost saved and those of us who are saved sanctified by the same message, the gospel. Let's pray. God, great is The gospel of you, our glorious God, what else can be said? As we embark on this new sermon series, in the weeks that lie ahead, God, we do ask for your Spirit's help. The truths in this book are too glorious, too great for our minds to be able to wrap themselves around them. And yet we are so grateful that the power of your Spirit can take the truth. Open it up to us and show us the glory of who you are and of what you've done. God, we pray that as a church we would be a church that's united. One heart, one voice, one mind. And that we'd be a church that's because of our theology so concerned and driven for the mission of the gospel. God, thank you that in your Perfect wisdom, you've left this letter for the church to feast upon. And if we were to take Luther at his word, Lord, it would do us good to read this often, if not daily, so that we might be able to savor the taste that you are the good God who's done everything for us in the gospel. So we pray that in these days, and these weeks, you would teach us. Go ahead of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.